Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It is a joy uh, to be here this morning. Happy November. I'd love to just go before the Lord to kind of get us started into this sermon space and just ask for his presence to continue to be with us and to be with me. God, we love you. We are aware of your uh, goodness, your grace. This morning, I ask that you would tune our ears to your word, you would mold my mouth to speak as you speak. We love you. We give this time to you in your name we pray. Amen. Have you guys ever noticed how many gyms there are in our city? For me, growing up in a small town in the Midwest, there really weren't many options for weightlifting. You either worked out at the YMCA or at a place called Roselawn. The Y was the place where most people went. They had all the things, the basketball court, the racquetball court, the pool, the sauna, free weights, cable weights, etc. But Roselawn, Roselawn was the place, it was like the gold's gym of my hometown. The muscle head dudes that put powder on their hands and wore tank tops that were way too small and lifted more weight on one bar than you could find in the whole free weight section of the Y. These people went to Roselawn. And I remember thinking growing up, maybe someday I'll be strong and big and I'll be able to lift that much weight. But lifting was really not my thing in high school. Uh, Believe it or not, my biceps used to be really small. Um, Well, about three years ago, I decided I would get a gym membership and try to set some PRs in the weight room. And as with most new ventures for me, I had to research everything. I like to start new things, knowing a little bit about what I'm doing so I can look the part and feel good. Well, when I first got my membership at at Anytime Fitness in Charlotte, I was ready to go. I had all the gear, I had watched YouTube, I had the right routine picked out, and I had my favorite Blue Raz pre-workout in hand. I love the feeling of becoming a new member at a gym. You feel special, you feel privileged, you feel motivated, excited. But here's the thing with getting a gym membership and all the right gear. It doesn't change you. Like you don't grow biceps by signing up for the YMCA. You don't get big quads by wearing newly bought lifting shoes. No, if you want to change, you have to put in the work. You have to show up day in and day out, and it is hard. You grow your muscles through resistance. You put your muscle into growth mode by using it, pushing it to its limits, ultimately straining it. With your body, transformation happens over time. You know, we've been in a series in the book of Ephesians where we're peering into Paul's letter to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey area. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul reminds the church of their identity in Christ. Everything he says in chapters 4 and beyond flows out of this identity. In the back half of the book, we're going to learn about the implications that this identity should have on the way we live, 
Paul is getting to the so what part of his letter. In light of what is true of you in Christ, live this way. In light of your new identity, the Gentiles are now members of God's family. And this is huge news and has huge implications on how they should live. You see, following Jesus for them and for us begins with the decision to believe in him. It's as simple as that. Anyone can make this decision as long as it's called today. It's not that behavior starts a relationship with God, though. It's belief. Truly believing in Jesus begins to change everything about our behavior, though. Even though our status is immediately changed, we go from lost to saved, broken to redeemed, sinner to righteous, orphan to adopted. Believing in Christ doesn't change us entirely. We are reminded all throughout the scriptures that following God should change the way that we live the way that we walk. In a similar way that getting a membership at a gym isn't the only step to getting in shape, believing in the good news isn't the only step in becoming like Jesus. Transformation over time. And today's passage is going to press in on this idea that sometimes we return to our pre-gym membership habits, dipping back into our old ways. And the call of Paul is going to be practical and challenging. Let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Listen to these words. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Paul is painting a dark picture of what life was like before Christ. The church in Ephesus was made up primarily of ethnic Gentiles, and to be a Gentile at this time meant to not be a part of God's redeemed people. So when you hear a Gentile today, think non-Christian, think lost person. Imagine the emotional impact of having been adopted out of this way of living and hearing Paul use these words Words like futility, darkened, excluded, ignorance, hardness of heart, callous, promiscuous, impure, desirous of more and more. And before we go on thinking that this isn't us, let us be reminded that this isn't too different than the way of our day, the American way, the 21st century way, the Charlotte way. We too chase after things that lead us into destructive patterns. Our wrong thinking leads us towards moral compromises with content that we take in. The things we say, the things we do, we chase idols like wealth, notoriety, power, sex, and we have a gratification for more. Oh, the insatiable desire of a charlatan for more. Calloused, darkened, ignorant. We too were once as the first century Jewish people, Gentile people, and we too have been rescued in our adoption in Christ out of this. But Paul doesn't stop here. Instead, he reminds this church in verse 20 that this was the former way. Look with me at verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. This was how you once walked, but you have come to know a new way. 
Because of Christ, you've been changed and now you can actually walk differently. Listen, family, walking with Jesus is the way out of the former way. Paul is using personal language here. You heard about and were taught by him. This knowing of Christ is personal and relational, not simply a mental understanding of him. A correct mental ascent of the story of Jesus isn't enough. Listen, church, theological precision isn't enough for conversion. It isn't enough for getting into God's family. In the book of James chapter 2, we learn that even the demons believe that Jesus is God. Belief in Jesus is about trust, relational trust. And this trust comes from knowing, that, knowing this Jesus personally, having a relationship with him. When we truly see Jesus for the first time as he is, when the Spirit illuminates the second person of the Godhead, the Father reveals himself in the Son, we are confronted with a choice, a choice as old as time, the choice to believe, the choice to trust, a choice to follow Jesus and walk as he walked. Have you trusted God? Will you trust God? Listen, if you're in this room and you have never trusted in Jesus, this message won't feel like it's entirely for you. But we as a church, we want to help you take your next step. And for you, that is to put your trust in Jesus for the first time. Please do not tune out yet, though, because my hope is to show you that we Christians, the rest of us in this space, we're messed up. And we do not always live like Christians should live. And maybe that's a reason why you're not ready to believe. I hope you find this encouraging when I rip into us as Christians for the rest of this time. All right. Paul's audience here had already trusted Christ. This is important for us to know. This is a church he is writing to. They've already converted. He's talking to Christians just like you and me, but they've slipped up. And don't we do this too? We slip up, we sin, we fall back into the old way. We go backwards. One of the greatest deterrents to the non-Christian world around us is the hypocrisy of Christians. People saying they believe, but acting like they don't. And for some of us in here, we come to Sunday and we're ready to go. We come in singing and praying. We bring our Bible, we take notes, but we leave it all at the door. We go back to our workplaces, our homes, our marriages, our roommates, our neighborhoods, and we act like we did before we met Jesus. And while this is sometimes the way, it should not be so. And this is what Paul is getting at. You have been changed. You have heard and been taught to remove the old, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new. And so it is with us. We also today need to be reminded, just like this church, that our former selves is not who we are any longer. Instead, we've been made new and this newness is both past, present, and future. We were made new in Christ. We are being made new in Christ, and we will be made new in Christ. Transformation over time. And so this brings me to our main point for today. We are to walk with Jesus by removal, renewal, and putting on. This was the way we came to know him initially, and it's the way we walk in him continually. This is baptism language here. When we become a part of God's family, the old self passes away and dies. We are no longer enslaved to our sinful nature. As we dip into the water, we put to death our sin just as Christ died. And as the water renews us, so the spirit transforms us from the inside out. 
We then are brought out of the water, symbolizing Jesus' resurrection and conquering of death and sin. This is the putting on of the new man. New and refreshed, we begin to walk in obedience to our new master. Walk in the way of Jesus. In salvation, we become free to walk differently. But this process doesn't just happen once. While we may only get baptized once or be converted once, we are to walk differently every single day. We need ongoing removal of the old, ongoing renewal by the Spirit, ongoing putting on of the new, transformation over time. It is entirely possible for us to resort to the former way, the Gentile way, the American way, the way we were before. Think of it like this. Who likes a good fairy tale? Spence likes a good fairy tale. <laughs> Some of y'all do, and you just don't want to admit it. Some of you burly men love me a fairy tale. Well, arguably, Disney's most popular princess story is a classic rags to riches tale. We love these kinds of stories. The story of a young girl who tragically loses her mother and finds herself the unloved stepdaughter and stepsister in a home where she's reduced to servant status. She's dressed in rags and tasked with doing all the dirty work of this household. Well, word gets out that there's a king nearby looking for a beautiful princess to marry his son and become the queen. This young servant maiden, Cinderella is her name, knows that she cannot afford to buy a dress and that her evil stepmother will never let her go to the ball. So since she can't go, she won't meet the prince. And if she doesn't meet the prince, then she won't become the princess. Well, the fairy tale goes as they do, and Cinderella is magically clothed with a beautiful, one-of-a-kind, iconic blue dress. She makes it to the ball. She dances with the prince. Sparks fly. Chemistry is strong. And despite an unfortunate misplacement of a glass slipper and the stroke of midnight that forces her back into her prison of a home, Cinderella is ultimately pursued by her prince in a classic love story. She's eventually brought to the new kingdom where she lives as queen happily ever after. And while this story is completely made up and glass slippers seem more dangerous than luxurious, I share it because there's something inherent in this story that makes all of us agree that it would be absurd for Cinderella to purposefully return to her stepmother's enslavement, to put back on her rags and to hand over her crown in exchange for a servant's bonnet. This is what Paul is saying to the church. You have been redeemed. You've been made new. So returning to the old self and putting on the old proverbial clothes is absurd. It's not the way you learned. No, the cloak of sin was removed in Christ and the spirit renewed your minds in Christ and you have been given a new outfit, the one that makes you look like Christ who is full of righteousness and purity. Friends, how often are you, how often am I returning to the clothing of sin? Take it off. Be renewed and put on the new self. This is the way that we walk with Jesus. This is what we do in light of our new identity. But what does this actually mean? Like Jake, I get that we're not supposed to walk in the former way and we're not supposed to be bad. We're supposed to be new. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's often said that good preachers always give an application. And while I'm an aspiring good preacher, Paul is an excellent preacher, and he himself gives the people of this church exactly what they need to do, the how 
of this message. In a really practical way, Paul is going to address five tangible ways of taking off and putting on. He'll do this with five contrasts. Think of it as five things to take, old things to take off, and five new things to put on in their place. In honor of Paul's, Paul's clothing reference, we're going to call this section of our sermon the Jesus fit. Now, if you're like me, you might not know what that means. My middle school children are teaching me all the new cool words, and apparently your fit is slang for your outfit. But it's cooler to say fit, and a small part of me wants to be cool, so we're going to call it our Jesus fit. Got it? What does it look like for us to take off our rags of wickedness and to put on our robes of righteousness? Well, let's take a look and see, starting in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying speaks the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So the first article in our Jesus fit is to take off deception and put on truth. Off with the old, on with the new. In the Greek, Paul is saying, stop the cap, speak the truth. There you go. Cool words, guys, cool words. Cap is slang for lying. Um, so put away lying, speak the truth. That's all I got for you guys. You're welcome. Uh, speak, speak the truth. Why? Why does this matter? Because we are members of one another. We heard earlier in verse 15 that the, the value of speaking in truth Speaking the truth in love, it, it builds the body up. Lying, on the contrast, destroys. Telling the truth in love builds. And when we say that we're members of one another, he's using adoption language from chapters one and two. We are all one family in Christ. Gentile and Jew, male and female, middle schooler and empty nester, African-American and Chinese-American, married and single. And deception in the body of Christ tears this all apart. So we must put off deception and put on truth. The Bible calls Satan the father of lies, and, he calls God, and it calls God the truth. There are few things more antithetical to God's character than deception. And you might think to yourself this morning, yeah, but I'm not a liar. But what about exaggerating to make yourself look better? I know I do this. We tell stories where we represent ourselves as the hero so we can look better. That's a kind of lying. What about cheating on a test or saying that you read a book when you actually didn't? There needs to be no room in the body of Christ for, for deception. When we walk in our Jesus fit, we are characterized by integrity. And ultimately, this brings flourishing to the whole family. Whether in a courtroom or a dinner table, Christians should be people of their word. So we must take off deception and put on truth. Paul continues with our next article in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Our second article in our Jesus fit is to take off anger and put on peace. Be angry and do not sin. Anger itself doesn't equal sin. There's such a thing as holy anger. But so often our, our anger, it leads to sin, does it not? Especially when it is ignored when it's suppressed, when it's allowed to fester for too long. There are studies that actually show that suppressed anger can lead to not just depression, but a disease that causes some people to experience a sensation that they say, quote, feels like having flames in their bodies. This adds a whole new dimension to hot with anger. Paul knows that anger 
can and often does result in sin. So he challenges the Ephesians and us to deal with our anger with an expedient pursuit of peace. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This means that when we're following Jesus, we don't let our anger sit like we did before Jesus. We deal with it by pursuing peace. If our anger is unholy, then we likely need to forgive. We likely need to repent. We likely need to have an actual conversation where we talk this through with somebody. And if our anger is in response to sin that's committed against us or against others, we pursue peace through prayer to God. First, we go to him and we ask him to search us and to show us how there might be a wayward way in us. And we ask what he would have us to do with this. Maybe he is angry too. And we are to be the change agent to right the wrong that we have become angry about. This is a way to be a peacemaker. Pursuing justice and mercy is a way of bringing peace. So we, as the people of God, we must take off anger and put on peace. Picking back up with me in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Our third article in our Jesus fit is to take off stealing and put on giving. Paul continues by commenting on how a thief must no longer steal, but instead he or she must get a job doing honest work and with the new wages that have been earned, become a giver, a sharer of earnings. For many of us in this room, we don't think of ourselves as thieves. And so something like this comes up in the scripture and we just move beyond it. But as one of your pastors I want to challenge you to stop for just a moment and consider for, for just a moment the, the possibility that you might be prone to stealing in ways that you've just grown accustomed to. In the most simple form, stealing is taking something that's not yours without permission. And maybe the easiest thing to steal in our day and not get caught is time. Maybe you work somewhere as an employee. Have you ever left your job early without permission? Have you ever misrepresented the amount of work that a certain project took and overbilled a client? Have you been working from home but not actually working? Instead, shopping or mowing your grass, which is not the right kind of work, unless you're a landscaper. You might think, Jake, you're really splitting hairs here. My boss is cool. Well, she doesn't care that I'm not working all the time. She just wants me to get my work done, and I do that. Well, maybe so, but how does your boss, how much does your boss know about how much extra time you actually have? Have you guys sat down together and agreed upon a certain set of tasks that once these are done, you can be done? If we're Jesus people, this means that we won't walk the way we used to. Imagine if instead you thought like this, I used to steal from my work, but then came to know Jesus and he has been changing me and I want to be an honest person. And if I'm honest, I can take more on. I can take off some of the workload that my teammates are unable to complete. I can give more. This is what Paul is saying from thief to philanthropist, from taker to giver. The Christian motive for earning shouldn't just merely be to have enough for oneself and maybe a little bit extra for comforts and luxuries, but to have in order to give to the needy. Giving becomes the motive for getting. Imagine a world where Christians lived this way. Imagine what would happen in a city like Charlotte if just Mercy Church worked this way. 
We must take off stealing and put on giving. Paul continues in verse 29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Our fourth article in our Jesus fit is to take off destructive words and put on constructive words. You can start to see a pattern here. Paul is riffing further on this idea that a Christian should contribute. This time it's not with physical resources, but with words. Christians should use their mouth, not for destruction, but for construction. In James chapter three, James tells us that the tongue is powerful, that it can steer a ship like a rudder, that it can ignite a forest like a spark, but not for Jesus people. For us, the tongue is to be used to build up. Maybe for you, this is where you need to put in some work and taking on and putting off. Think about it. Reflecting on the last week, it's said that the average person speaks more than 10,000 words a day. Well, if that's true, then that's about a novel a week in just the words that you've spoken. If you took inventory of those words, I'm sure there would be many that are filler and rendered essentially with no value. But how many would be destructive? And before we go and let ourselves off the hook, thinking that because we don't cuss a bunch or at all, that we don't do this. Friends, if we're honest, there are all kinds of foul words that we let come out of our mouths. How do you talk about people when they aren't around? When you're with your friends and that one really difficult person is there, you speak a certain way, but what do you say when they leave? Do you gossip? Do you slander? Foul words. Wife in the room. How do you talk about your husband to your friends? Do you emphasize his weaknesses to them? Do you hide foul language under the mask of friendship or community? Or husband? Same question. Do you vent about your wife to your friends, complaining about how she doesn't do enough or doesn't act this way? Imagine what could happen, family, if the Jesus people of mercy started writing novels with their words and constructed stronger people through encouragement, honor, and gratitude. Imagine if we wrote novels that literally gave grace to those who heard. What a community we would be. What a community we would become. Paul wraps up this section of our letter with these words, picking up in verse 31. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Wow. Just this verse alone is no small order. We're going to take the next 45 minutes and unpack each element of this article. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Our last article of clothing in our Jesus fit is to take off the harsh and put on the gentle. Paul spouts off six unpleasant attitudes to take off, and then he tells his readers what to put on instead. This is the pattern, off with the old, on with the new. Take off bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, malice. Put on kindness, compassion, forgiveness. I think that Paul's getting at the need to take off what's harsh and destructive to the community and the people of God, and to put on what is gentle and ultimately loving. And for us, the same is true today. If we are to walk in the Jesus way, we must take off the harsh qualities and be clothed in the gentleness that comes from being like Jesus, that comes from being with Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus himself describes his yoke as easy and his 
burden as light and in self as gentle and lowly. As we walk with Jesus, we become like Jesus. We must take off the harsh and put on the gentle. And maybe after a list of do's and don'ts like this, you find yourself feeling a little condemned, a little overwhelmed, a little like, gosh, I'm the worst. How could I ever live this out? I get it. Like for real, I understand this is the hard passage with a bunch of difficult truths. Any one of these five things could take months to grow in. But before we lose hope, I want to point your attention to verse 30. It says this, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Church, there is great theological richness in just this simple verse. Commentators are uncertain why Paul is putting this particular command in the middle of his five contrasts. It's almost as if Paul was caught up in the passion of what he was saying and he drops in this one-liner to just punctuate his point. I think that he's saying that when we walk in the former way, the Gentile way, the way we were before Jesus, we grieve the Spirit. This language is personal. He is appealing to the person inside of you. The Spirit is a person of God. He is grieved when we sin. Pain, sorrow, and distress come upon God's Spirit when we sin against Him. Even beyond the grief that we cause God, when Christians sin, it hurts people. It hurts other Christians. This is part of the reason why church hurt is such a big issue for many of you and such a part of your story. It's not as it should be. Paul is saying, don't walk in the former way because this grieves the Spirit. But the idea doesn't stop here. Paul reminds his readers, as he did in chapter 1, that the Spirit has been given to us as a seal in church. This is the good news for us this morning. Let's go back to the Cinderella story for just a moment. Even though it is entirely possible for you and for me to walk back to the place of the evil stepmother, to the place of our imprisonment, the place of captivity, to sinful living, to futility, darkness, hardness of heart, and purity, and to strap on the rags of wickedness again, even though we sometimes do this, there's something different about the redeemed, a mark a symbol, a proof that change has begun. It's as if Cinderella has been permanently marked with the sign of the kingdom of her prince. And church, if you are in Christ, this is true of you this morning. Even though we sometimes return to the former way, we are marked with the spirit of the living God. We are sealed until the day that the Prince of Peace comes looking for us. He will come on the clouds with fire in his eyes looking for his bride and he will gather her up and there will be a great wedding and a feast and forevermore in perfect purity we will walk in his kingdom face to face with our redeemer. Hallelujah. What a day it will be. And the great hope for us is that this seal isn't just the proof of what's to come. It's also the power to walk It's the power to be transformed. The Spirit transforms us over time. The hope of this passage isn't in earning our way. We don't earn our way by putting on our Jesus fit. The seal of the Spirit comes before we've walked with Jesus. 
transformation over time. And the whole time, the Spirit is our guarantee. When we become discouraged, when we become downtrodden, when we look at our sin and say, it's too much, I've gone too far back into the old ways, the Spirit, the little symbol marked wherever it is on your body is proof that He owns you and you will be redeemed. This is our hope today. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for this redemption, let us not grieve the spirit by walking in the former way, but let us together as newly adopted brothers and sisters walk with Jesus day by day, by removal of the old, renewal by the spirit and through putting on the new. I wanna end our time in prayer. The band's gonna come up and play some music and lead us into our next song of worship. And I want you to go ahead and get into a posture of prayer that you feel comfortable with Sometimes when we hear a sermon like this, it's challenging to know how to respond. Uh, Maybe we feel a sense of condemnation. Maybe we feel numb, like none of this really means anything to me. Well, I don't want us to miss the opportunity to just go before God and just ask him, what do you want to tell me today, God? And just let his words transform you. So we're going to do that. We're going to have a little space, just some silence. Go before the Lord and I'll uh, I'll close us in prayer when we're done. Father, we come before you, open. Would you speak to us? Spirit, we need renewal. We need your power to transform. We can't do this on our own. Too many burdens, take them. Jesus, help us to be like you. Help us to learn your way, to carry the easy yoke, to walk in the light burden, gentle, and lowly, we follow you. Where else will we go? Father, continue to do work in this space in these next moments. Lord, I pray that you would save the lost, encourage the saved, transform us all for your glory forever and ever. Amen.